Our Old Testament reading comes to us from Genesis 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and <clears throat> to every, and you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And you still do not know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Father, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we uh, think on these words of Scripture and how they relate to the Apostles' Creed, would you help us to know how we might uh, be persons of belief and faith, trust in Christ? So guide us 
this morning our conversation we ask in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. So uh, as we've sort of come through this Easter season in which we've celebrated the story of Jesus who, who lived, who was crucified, who was risen again, we're sort of beginning now to sort of think on well, what, are the, what are the things that Christians believe? What do we believe about God? Uh, and what are the, 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 the beliefs or the aspirations even about this relationship with God that, really, that we think ought to shape the way we live life in the earth, like our lives, your life, my life. And to help us do that uh, from week to week uh, leading up to Pentecost, we're going to be uh, thinking about the teaching of the Apostle Creeds very specifically, um, which is a creed that we say week after week after week after week here in our community. Um, and so we want to understand what are we confessing? What are we believing in as we uh, take these words uh, to our mouth each week? What are we aspiring to, uh, perhaps we could even say? Now, the, the creed is a very brief statement. It's a thumbnail sketch of Christian belief. Um, and, uh, but it arises out of the story of Jesus itself. Uh, the creed uh, is not this sort of standalone document that has these discrete sort of things about God, these uh, propositional statements about God. Well, hey, God is almighty, by the way. God is father. God is son. You know, it's, it, rather, it holds together in the revelation of who Jesus is. We're meant to sort of process it in, in that context. It's one of the oldest statements that the church has used. Its oldest parts or its earliest sort of, it's thought to be sort of said as early as 200. It may be a little before that. Um, uh, and, and so it's an important creed in the life of the church. But here's something I want you to think about in relation to it. How, how should you use it? So um, does anybody like to hike? Some of you do. Come on, show of hands. I know that's unusual for City Church. Good, I got some feedback. How nice. Whoa. Um, Stacy and I like to hike. We enjoy, you know, getting out into some mountain vista space. And, you know, when you hike, it's generally a good idea to use what? A map. All right, a trail map. You would take a trail map with you, and you would want to, and hopefully the trail is marked along the way. That helps too, right, to sort of keep your bearings if you've ever been in a space like that. Yes, the mic continues to sink. Um, we will get through this. So a trail map is a helpful thing if you like hiking, and um, uh, the benefit of a map is that it gives you some guideposts. It sort of moves you along, but you'd really be foolish if you mistook the map for the vista, right? If you mistook the map for the trail, or if you just were sort of on the trail and you just had your head sort of in the map, right? You would, uh, you would um, we're going to do a little switcheroo here, and that's going to be better, right? I think that will be better for all of us if we just do this. Yes. Well, we have switched. All right. So the map is not the landscape, uh, and that's just a hugely important thing for us to remember, but the map is helpful because the map might give you some pointers. It'll give you some directions, right, for where you're headed, um, and, and so it's helpful to remember that as we think about something like the creed. The creed is sort of um, is, is giving us a land, it's, it's giving us a sort of a directional focus, uh, to sort of move along in our study of God or our sense of, or our quest to sort of know who God is. But if you sort of hung out onto the creed and you just thought, you know, I've, I've memorized the creed. It is in my heart. Therefore, God is in my heart, right? You would be missing something. You wouldn't be letting sort of the road markers, you wouldn't let the trail markers be lifting your eyes 
so that you actually come into a space of relational context with God, that you encounter him in some particular way. So it's helpful to sort of remember that as we come into a study of something like the Apostles' Creed. The point is to know God. <laughs> the point is to look up. The point is to enter the relationship with God and to let that relationship reshape the way you relate to yourself and your own personal story, the way you relate uh, to your neighbor, the way you relate to your vocation, and so on and so forth. In other words, the whole point of the creed is to sort of anchor our imagination in the trajectory of who God is and how he's come to us in Jesus so that we begin to live life in God's world a little differently. Now, right out... Um, this morning, rather, we're going to look at the first part of the, of, of the creed where we profess belief in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, um, as we begin this sort of navigation into our consideration of who God is and how we ought to be thinking about him. And right out, there's that challenging set of words, I believe in. What does that mean, to believe in this God? Uh, Rowan Williams we couldn't escape a sermon without a quote from Rowan Williams. But Rowan Williams, in his little book on the creed called Tokens of Trust, describes this challenge this way. He basically says this. He says, when you hear someone in our culture and you, you, you talk about, I believe in this or I believe in that, it, he, said, we almost, he says we associate with things like, you know, it's like asking someone the question, do you believe in ghosts? Do you believe in UFOs? Uh, that we often sort of associate this, this quest or belief in God with just absurdity, right? It's almost like there's not enough evidence. How do I know if I believe in God, in the existence of God, right? We sort of, we get stuck and we get hung up in those spaces where we're trying so desperately to sort of, uh, to sort of anchor some sort of certainty uh, in God that feels a little bit more scientific because that's how we tend to think about uh, these kinds of things this day. Or maybe we begin to think it's... Um, in the language of our particular cultural moment and political moment, maybe this feels like we're being asked to believe a little bit in fake news. Um, do you believe in? When the creed speaks of belief, he goes on to say that it's not so much speaking about our belief in the existence of God, rather it assumes the existence of God and the revelation of who Jesus is. He says it's a little bit more like Jesus' interaction with the blind man in John chapter 9 when Jesus asks the blind man if he believes in the Son of Man. The point isn't do you believe in the existence of the Son of Man, but will you entrust yourself to the Son of Man? Will you interact with me, Jesus is saying, as the Son of Man? Will you interact with me in such a way that this interaction might actually produce some kind of change in your life? So when we think about what does it mean to believe in God, and as we will profess throughout the creed, these creedal statements, the question is a little bit more about trust. Will you entrust yourself to the story of who Jesus is? Will you entrust your understanding of who God is to the story of who Jesus is? Will you come back to the story of Jesus as a way of understanding and embracing some reality of who God is, some sense of who God is, in such a way that it actually, he actually begins to alter the way you and I live inside of our skin and inside of our stories, inside of our life. Now, this morning, we want to think about these specific words that are given, like these trail markers, if you will, as we're sort of going through the creed, Father, Almighty, right, maker of heaven and earth. Father, Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth. Will I believe and trust in this God? Now, think about this and the challenge of these particular words uh, this morning. So, Father, God is a Father. On a day like today, when we have a baptism, what a beautiful way to start this teaching on the creed, uh, we are loaded with aspiration about being a father or being a mother, about being a parent, right? And uh, Cheryl and, and uh, Bo are sort of taking those aspirational vows to themselves, right? And we begin to think about, you know, it's very easy in this moment, this beautiful, glorious moment to think about what might it mean for God to be a father, right? The way we are fathers. And so easy for us to sort of begin to become self-referential when we hear something about parenting. Um, the gospel text that we just read uh, includes Jesus' very bold assertion that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's interesting as you follow the dialogue there that Jesus feels so surprised with Philip's questioning, right? It's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Have I not been with you so long? Don't you get it? Don't you understand the unity between me and the Father? Now put this in the frame of our own lives for just a brief moment. We have a saying, right? You've heard it. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. When we say that, what do we mean? We mean that we're beginning to identify characteristics in our children that either look like or mimic in some sense or reflect the personality of, of the parent, right? So, you know, so you almost can't help it if you see a newborn, right? You almost can't help it. You see the newborn, and what do you do? Ah, Bryce looks like Cheryl. No, 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 no. Bryce looks like Bo. And we just get back in this sort of, we're, we're just trying to identify what is the likeness between mother and father and child, right? We do that instinctively. And as the child gets older, the, the apple doesn't far from the tree has other interesting nuances, right? Because, you know, will Bryce take on the creativity of a filmmaker? Or will Bryce be a football coach? I mean, you know, just we get, we get stuck. In like for the vocational choices of our parents become reflected, right, in our children. Or the, the personal characteristics, the attributes of parents sort of begin to be attributed to the same, right? So we get we sort of understand this thing, but here's the problem. Our vows and our practice of being a mom or a dad is a lot more aspirational, right? By which I mean this, that we are loaded with goodwill, but we stumble all over the place in the execution of goodwill. We, we love, but we love brokenly. We love, but we love poorly. We, we aim to love, but it's always mixed with the brokenness of our humanity at the same time. So when we talk about the apple not far, falling far from the tree, sometimes it includes some really negative traits, right? You're just like your mom. You're just like your dad. And generally, we're not positive when we are speaking like that, right? So there's a problem with our human experience of fatherhood or motherhood, and the problem is that we've been hurt by our parents, or we've been loved poorly, and we've, we've received love poorly as children. And if you begin there, and you hear a word like God is Father, and your story, your personal story, includes a little more pain than joy in that narrative, 
this is a hard word for you. But the beauty of the creed is that it is not starting with you. It's not starting with your experience of your earthly parents. It is not calling you to think about your best experiences with your earthly parents or your worst. It is rather calling you to the very things that Jesus is articulating in John chapter 14. And that is simply his life with his father. Because as Jesus begins to talk about this unity between father and son, his life with God, his heavenly father, he is calling us to understand that he is the one human being who has perfectly grown up in the household of God. And the apple has not fallen far from the tree. So that if you see him, if you behold him, if you encounter him, you have in fact seen the father. That's what Jesus is calling us to see. So to speak of God as father is actually something we can trust in. Not because we've had some great experience ourselves or not because we've had some really poor experience ourselves, but because Jesus and the father were one. It's a beautiful place in the gospels. Do you remember it where Jesus... Jesus' disciples say, hey, will you teach us to pray? In other words, will you teach us how we should talk to God? And Jesus says, begin this way, our Father who art in heaven. What is he doing in that? He's giving you a lot more than a title. He's giving his disciples a relationship. He says, the way you ought to approach God and the way you ought to understand God is, is the freedom of a son who is so lavishly loved by the Father so that you, you can run boldly. You know, even in my worst moments of parenting, <laughs> you know, if my kids cry out to me in the middle of the night, after Stacy wakes me up, I'll go upstairs. Right? I mean, okay, that was a little bit of an honest, right? But, but you get it, right? A child has the liberty of approach. And what, 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 Jesus, what the creed is sort of calling us to, and I think what Jesus teaches us here in John 14, and what he teaches us when he talks about praying the Lord's Prayer, is he's saying, you have the liberty of approach. Because you have the liberty of relationship. And God is not like your, your earthly father. God is your heavenly father, and he, he is only oriented toward you for good. He is only oriented you toward, toward, for your flourishing. He, he cares about, he delights in you. So this first phrase, when we begin to think about what does it mean to sort of think on God as our Father, what would it look like for you just very practically to go into this week and to remember that God desires you and that he grants you access to his presence because he loves you, he delights in you. And what would it look like for you to speak to him as father, not as someone you had to sort of cajole and move along and persuade, you know, to some end. This is not your teenage self, by the way, with God, right? This is, you know, what, what would it look like to just liberally know that he delights in you, that he longs to lavish his grace and his presence upon you? The creed takes us into these descriptions so that as we walk through our lives, we would be mindful of God, our heavenly father. Now, Second phrase, almighty, is also a hard, a hard word, I think, for us. When we hear the word almighty, on the one hand, I want God to be strong, and I know that God, you know, logically would need to be strong if he was, in fact, God. Uh, if there is a God, it makes sense that he's power, but power is also scary. And it's scary because, on the one hand, 
we misuse it and we've been recipients of its misuse in our world and in the lives, uh, in our lives. I mean, you know, just read through the political narratives of the last year and you, we're, we're a little bit on, on, on edge, right? I mean, we, do you feel that? When you hear about North Korea, you hear about the way our president may interact with North Korea, or the Russians, or just on and on. You just look at any place, a political narrative in the world, and what are we, we're afraid the wrong people have power. Why? Because we profoundly understand that power can just be so misused. And when power is misused, the consequences are profoundly damaging. I was thinking about this in the context of just other cultural movements, right? Um, where I was with a group of persons, uh, this, uh, we, uh, Chris and Jonathan and I were on a retreat this week, and one of the exercises that we had to do uh, as pastors on this retreat is we had to write a psalm, uh, and a, a psalm of lament or a psalm of anger or a psalm of joy. So we were using the Old Testament psalms as a pattern for us to think about what would it look like for us to write a psalm for the people of God uh, to live with. And so one of, one of the pastors that was with us uh, was a student who went to UVA in Charlottesville, and he chose to write a psalm of anger about racism in Charlottesville. We look at a situation of racial divide and racial conflict, and we're profoundly aware of what? A misuse of power. We think back to this year, right, the, the hashtag MeToo uh, sort of issue, right? What do we know there? There's a misuse of power with regard to gender and sexuality. Um, and just on and on, we could find spaces in our world and in our lives personally where we've been hurt because some authority over us or someone who had cultural power or political power or vocational power in the workplace, just wherever it is, or in your family. And we recognize that someone has not held power well, which, by the way, this is why I think you know, the Andy Crouch book is such a beautiful book for us to be reading as a community. Uh, take advantage of reading it. Take advantage of discussing it in, in the class beforehand. It's, it, it, it sort of engages this problem of the way we live with power uh, it's su in such an important way. But we recognize that power is abused and misused in our world. And so when the creed teaches us to understand that God is Father Almighty. What is he teaching us to think about? The story of Jesus is our instructor. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus, who although he was God, did not exploit his godness, that is, he did not grasp it and cling to it, but rather with open hand released it and became a servant and was born into our world and he lived in our world as a servant unto death on the cross. And God has raised him up. What is the story of power there? Just this. That when God walks into a room, he doesn't think about how to network you. When God walks into a room, he's not thinking, how do I leverage your gifts for my sake? But when God walks into a room, he thinks, how do I leverage myself for you? How do I take whatever power I have, whatever greatness I have as God, and how do I use it? How do I deploy it for your sake so that you flourish? Because that is what brings God joy. God's almightiness is different from our almightiness. 
So if you want to think about power, we're always in the creed and always in the context of the church invited and urged to think about it in the story of Jesus himself. Because the invisible God, no one has seen, but Jesus has revealed the invisible God. So if you want to understand fatherhood, if you want to understand what it means to be powerful, look at the story of Jesus. Now the third thing, the maker of heaven and earth. We get stuck here in our cultural moment because the moment you start talking about the maker of heaven and earth or creation itself, our minds run to what? The debate between you know, Christians and scientists, right? We run into the space of, uh, of our own scientific curiosities and you read a story that we read just a few moments ago, part of the story out of Genesis. Uh, you, you read that story and you think, how do these things go together? I have no idea how these things can go together because they seem so opposite to one another, right? We get stuck in questions about uh, the mechanics or the science that engineered the cosmos in some sense or gave rise to the cosmos in some sense. And that is a beautiful and it is a legitimate pursuit. But guess what? That is not the pursuit of the Bible. The Bible's interested, the story of scripture is interested in God as maker and how does that um, maybe unleash us to do our scientific endeavor. But it's interested in God as maker and creator who infuses our world with meaning and purpose, and so therefore our own lives with meaning and with purpose, so that we live in the world as makers too, in the likeness of God, an apple that doesn't fall too far from the tree. We are conceived by God to be like him in his world, to make things too, so that as we parent, as we father, as we mother, as we become caregivers, as we become aunts and uncles and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers and friends and neighbors, and as we sort of enter our spaces of vocation and we enter our spaces of creativity and hobby and whatever it is that we do so, in the likeness of God, recognizing that the things that we make are valuable. There's purpose, there's intent. God has not created us manipulatively, but freely. He unleashes our lives into the world. Um, so these words call us to consider what it means to believe in a God that has made us to be like himself. There's a problem with God being a maker for some of us because it's not just the scientific questions that we bring to the equation, but it's also the personal questions we bring. We've experienced the world in very broken ways. We read the newspaper and we're aware that brokenness and suffering abounds inside of our world. So what does it mean that God is a creator and a maker of all of that? How do we situate that inside of this profound confession that we believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth? How do we understand the brokenness that's in the earth, the injustice that's in the earth, the abuse that's in the earth? And just let me say a couple of things about that that gesture toward an answer. The whole point of the story of who Jesus is is about that. Jesus has come to live a different kind of human life in the world, but a human life that lives and dies and rises, that God celebrates to the extent and says your life is part of a brand new creation, a remaking of creation, we could even say. So in Romans chapter 8, Paul says a pretty famous thing that uh, gets quoted quite a bit, right? Um, that, uh, that all things work together for good to those that are called by God. 
Uh, it's easy to quote that text and sort of hold on to that, but it gets so misused and distorted. But what is Paul getting at when he says something as bold as that? I think just something as simple as this. That if you look on the sorrow of your life personally, and you look on the, abuse of you've, the abuses that you've encountered personally, or you think about the stories of abuse and the stories of injustice, the inequalities that exist inside of our world, the assurance of that text is just simply this, that those stories will not run their course. They will not run their course. They will not be the final word over your life or over the creation itself, but rather, in Jesus, God will bring beauty. So we hold on to those words in the midst of sorrow, believing that even in those moments when it seems absolutely inconceivable that I understand the, the, the hidden purpose of some piece of suffering, that I understand ultimately that God has connected my story and my experience of this suffering, this sorrow, to the story of Christ. And I will be raised my life will be participant in the new creation of God and Jesus Christ. So that when we see the sorrow, we don't just hang out there as if it were the last chapter of the story that's being told. But we recognize God has connected us to the story of Christ. He doesn't tell us much more than that. He doesn't give us the assurance that we'll figure out all the pieces inside the space of our own earthly lives but he assures us that our life is connected to this beautiful space in Jesus. Now, one other thought. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul is reflecting on and riffing on the importance of the resurrection as a reality that we must cling to and hold to as our hope, he says this beautiful statement that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. He's not talking about what pastors do, by the way. He's talking about what you do. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, your life, my life, is reconnected to God's call that we go and make, that we go and create. And we do that when we take up our vocations, and we do that when we mother, and we do that when we father, and we do that when we're a sibling, and we do that when you're a neighbor. And all of the spaces of human life, as you take up whatever that vocation requires of you, in that context, your life reconnected to God through Jesus means that that labor is beautiful. It is not in vain. Hold on to that as we walk through the spaces of the creed so that you would look up and you would behold the way God has come to you, the way he's met you in the person of Jesus and find hope and find joy. I believe in, I trust in, we say these words so that we might know that God is with us in this journey of life and we might be persons who are changed and transformed by his presence to us. So, this morning, if you're a person and you think, I struggle to know if God exists. I have doubts. Join the club. But lean into the story of who Jesus is. Don't live in the abstractions of your mind as you get lost in some theoretical debate about whether God exists or not, but look at the story of who Jesus is because that is where God has designed that you and I would look and know him and be known by him. 
If you're a person for whom the brokenness of life feels palpably overwhelming, lean into the reality of his fatherly love, his almightiness revealed in Jesus as he leverages his life towards you for your sake, that you might have hope and you might have joy. And if you're in a place of joy or success in your life, you think things are going pretty well. Don't live in the arrogance of thinking you got there by yourself. But understand that he is a God who has come to you and connect the dots of your life to the story of the creed, to the story of who Jesus is. Lean into him. Take up the map. And as you take up the map, let it aim your imagination and remind you that God is a God who has loved us well. And let us live in response to his love in the way we go about our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us um, this morning as we continue in our worship and come to your table. Would you meet us and would you fill us with hope and would you lift our eyes that we might behold your presence with us, whether we're in a place of doubt or a place of sorrow or a place of despair or a place of joy, would you help us to see how you are present to us in all of these spaces that we might be individuals in a community that lifts our eyes up and beholds your greatness and so lives into your world as those who are in your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The offering's a time to think about God's grace, his faithfulness to us as we offer our hearts, our lives, and our gifts to him. Let's do that now.